it doesn't matter how smart you are. If you're starting with earth, air, fire, and water, you're just not going to understand chemistry. You can't build chemistry on earth, air, fire, and water. It doesn't matter how smart you are. And that's the problem we've got. It doesn't matter how smart you are. If you start with physical systems in space and time, you cannot boot up a theory of consciousness. It's just not possible. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart and the ears, if you're watching on YouTube, of Pins the Podcast. Here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, oh, here she is, number 130. And this episode is with Donald Hoffman. Hold on, I got to cover this window that has my face on it. With Donald Hoffman, who is professor in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine, where he also has joint appointments in the Department of Philosophy, the Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science, and the School of Computer Science. And if that didn't didn't tell you all you needed to know about what I'm about to say already. Like many of my guests, it seems, uh, Don has contributed to research in a great many areas, from the very practical uh, vehicle lighting and blue jean design to accentuate the buttocks, which we get into, and canonical philosophical issues like the mind-body problem and standard cognitive science like shape perception. In this episode, we talk about two of those things. We talk a bit about the mind-body problem and a lot about butts that look good in blue jeans. But in this episode, we mainly talk about Don's recent best-selling book, which is The Case Against Reality. And the book offers a, a very novel approach to the the pretty old thesis, I think, that we don't directly perceive reality with our senses. And now what we do see here, taste and smell and touch, I guess, is not, so to speak, the truth of what's out there. So Don and I begin by talking about how he thinks of consciousness and its relation to neuroscience, which is really important for setting up his views on perception, since pretty naturally we have to understand the perceiver to know what perception is. But we then move on to the crux of his argument, which is that evolution by natural selection does not select for faculties that perceive truth, but faculties that perceive what whatever will result in greater fitness. And Don will, or does in fact, elaborate at length on my gloss on this in our conversation, but a good metaphor that we actually start out with, but that I'll, I'll share a, a bit of now, that a good metaphor that he employs it likens our perception of objects in the world to our perception of icons on our computer screen. So they're quite useful for getting things done, but they don't actually bear any resemblance to objective reality on the one hand or by the metaphor what's happening inside of your computer on the other. So there is a link to the case against reality, of course, in the description. Another thing I should mention is that there is a little bit of scratching on Don's microphone in the first five or 10 minutes of our conversation, but it's quite bearable. It's pretty minor. And we figured that out in the first, like I said, five or 10 minutes. Then likes, comments, reviews, subscribes. My favorite thing are reviews and subscribes. Uh, those are all very, very, very helpful. Please do so if you haven't. And then without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Don.
before we get into the case against reality, I'm wondering what direction the book came from. And what I mean is whether you were compelled to think about these issues because your research suggested that our experiences not of some objective reality or maybe because like Neo in the Matrix, which you <laughs> reference often or who you reference often, you had the sneaking suspicion that reality was very different from what you encountered in Waking Life. And I should note right now that as I read, there were many moments when I felt queasy, which is... I think a sure mark that I was seriously questioning whether I'm utterly uncoupled from reality. Well, yeah, I didn't start off thinking we don't see the truth, far from it. I, in fact, started off thinking about this stuff about perception when I was at MIT as a graduate student. And we were working, uh, I was working with David Marr, who was my advisor in the artificial intelligence lab there. And was now the Brain and Cognitive Science Department. So we were combining computational methods to study perception with neuroscience methods and, and also standard psychophysical methods, trying to just understand how perception works. And so I studied visual perception. And, and it occurred to me that as I looked at the various kinds of mathematical models we were getting, that there was something in common with all the, the all these mathematical models had a common theme, even though, you know, the, the, the particular perceptual topic was different. It might be visual perception of color versus shape or auditory perception, whatever. It still, it, it seemed like there was some kind of mathematical core that was the same. So I decided to try to pursue that. And it was pursuing that. Um, after I left MIT and came to UC Irvine, was working with Bruce Bennett and Chetan Prakash, trying to really nail down a general mathematical model of perception and once we had, so we did, we worked on it for a couple of years. And once we had something like a, a good formal model, as I started to study it with, with Bruce and Shaitan, I began to realize that it had this implication that, that potentially we're not seeing the truth. Uh, and that, that disturbed me. When, when I recognized that the mathematics might be indicating that, it disturbed me. And then later on, as I thought about, you know, evolutionary psychology, and evolution itself, there's you know, e evolution shapes us uh, as many ev you know, brilliant evolutionary theorists like Steven Pinker, you know, I mean, his, his paper, So How Does the Mind Work? He, he points out that there are all sorts of selection pressures for us not to have true beliefs. They're, they're, we, we do things on the cheap, <laughs> we do things quickly, we, we do things to impress people. We, we, there's lots of things that go on. And, and so I, I was sort of pushed kicking and screaming against my will to this idea that you know we don't see reality as it is but the more i pursued it the more it seemed to stack up and and then the more i started to pursue understanding consciousness too the more i began to think that that it all stacked up so so i didn't go in just trying to prove what i already believed I came into this kicking and screaming like most people. I mean, I just, <laughs> I, I, and I and frankly, my emotions still rebel to this day. Hmm. You mentioned David Marr, and I'd really like to get back to him when we discuss vertical perception because I know that he was your doctoral advisor for at least a portion of your time working toward your PhD. But before we delve into consciousness, which is where I think things start, just to whet the appetite for 
an understanding of experience as misleading about the nature of reality or misleading about whether we perceive the truth as as you just put it i think a great place to start is with your metaphor of a computer desktop or even the home screen on an iphone so how can we use this picture to get a handle on what it means to suggest that we don't perceive whatever's objectively out there yeah, most of us feel intuitively that when we look around and we see the moon and then we see a tree and then we see a rock and then we see a car, that we're seeing pretty much reality as it is. Not in every detail, but the moon is there, um, even if I don't look, and so is that rock. And the rock was probably there for thousands of years or and the moon for who knows how many billions of years. Uh, and And so their existence doesn't depend on me and I'm seeing them pretty much as they are. Of course, I'm not seeing all the microscopic details of the molecular states and so forth, but but we, we understand that. At the top level, I'm seeing their surface pretty much accurately. And so that's the standard view. So it's almost because that metaphor is more like a window. Our perceptions are a window on reality. You know, of, of course, it's not completely clear window and, and you know, I'm not seeing the microscopic structures and so forth, but I'm seeing... As far as I'm seeing, it's 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 true in general. It's is true, but there's another metaphor that I think is more apt given evolutionary considerations, and that is that we've been shaped by evolution to have sensory sense systems that guide adaptive behavior. Period. That's what they do. If, on evolutionary grounds, your perceptions of color, motion, shape, sounds, and so forth are there for one purpose. That's to guide adaptive behavior. The assumption that they also shame the truth is an extra assumption that goes beyond what evolutionary theory would, would suggest. What evolutionary theory suggests is a different metaphor, that our senses evolved like a desktop interface. There, so there's a reality out there that's unbelievably complicated. Our goal is to stay alive, interact with that reality and stay alive long enough to reproduce. We don't need to know what that reality is. All we need to know is how to interact with it to survive long enough to reproduce. So just like with your computer, uh, you don't need to know about the diodes and resistors and voltages and magnetic fields inside that computer to edit your photos or send a text. You don't, and in fact, you don't want to know all that detail about the innards of the computer. What you want is something that gives you an adaptive guide to using the computer, right? So that's what the interface is for, your desktop interface or your, your interface on your phone or whatever is there to hide the truth all the complexity of the diodes and resistors and voltages and magnetic fields to hide all that reality and just give you eye candy, the eye candy you need to get done what you need to get done. And and that's my conclusion based on just mathematical modeling of perception and then evolutionary considerations. And then later on, we can talk about, I think physics ultimately agrees that our perceptions of space and time and objects in space and time, um, as complicated as it seems, as as rich and, and powerful and real as it seems, is, is actually trivial compared to reality. Whatever reality is, space-time and the physical objects we see are trivial compared to the complexity of reality. And, and what we see is a user interface that dumbs things down and lets us um, do what we need to do to stay alive long enough to reproduce. Hmm. In this metaphor, the, the desktop icons don't even count I think it's fair to say as a distorted window of what's going on in the computer and the 
in the sense that you mentioned that the standard view of perception is that our perceptions are a window on reality. And I say this because these icons, so I mean, like the mail icon on my computer doesn't look at all like the the transistors, the files, whatever's going on within the computer is the analogy to our perception of the world the same in this sense that what we see is really this disconnected or this disparate from the underlying reality or is the connection closer on your view? On, on my view, uh, it's at least as different as the desktop metaphor, at least as different. Uh, my, my view is that space-time itself and therefore all of the objects inside space-time is a trivial, trivial data structure compared to reality. So all of the, what, what appears to us is the complexity and detail of objects and their colors and molecular you know, structures and so forth, all of that is unbelievably trivial compared to the nature of objective reality. And, and, and so the desktop metaphor, I think, doesn't go far enough to reveal the triviality of our perceptions compared to the reality. Hmm. Well, because this is ultimately going to be a, th a theory about how you and I and other humans connect with the world, so much of the work here, which which will eventually culminate in your theory of conscious realism, which we'll get to, hinges on an understanding of consciousness. But, I mean, with, with some exceptions, the consensus is that we have no real significant understanding at this point of just what produces consciousness. So the neural basis of consciousness. And I saw that it, well, in the book, the case against reality, you mentioned a discussion that you and Francis Crick had about how we ought to carry on in the absence of a theory. And what's the suggestion here? There's what's the connection. I guess I saw this as well. You see between the vitalism debate, the discovery of DNA, and then, the neural basis of consciousness. Right. So most, I'm very interested in you know, consciousness and its relationship to brain activity, as are many of my colleagues. Um, you know, Francis Crick, when he was alive, uh, Christoph Koch, and, and, and many of my, my friends and colleagues who are studying consciousness, we're all very interested in how my experience of the taste of chocolate and the smell of garlic and the color red are related to you know activity in visual cortex and frontal lobe cortex and so forth of, of the brain. Um, there's clearly correlations. There's there's no doubt anybody who's serious in this field understands that there are serious neural correlates for conscious experiences. They're complicated. They're not simple, but but there are neural correlations, and there are also correlations between uh, certain kinds of strokes and certain losses of of certain kinds of perceptual abilities. For example, if you have a stroke in area V4, uh, in the left hemisphere, you can lose all color perception in the right visual field. So you have hemiachromatopsia. Now that's a, a, a major change in your perceptual experience, your conscious experiences. So there's no doubt that there are neural correlates of, of, of consciousness, conscious experiences. There's no doubt that, that damaging the brain can fundamentally alter your perceptual experiences. The question, so those are clear data. The question is to have a scientific theory that explains this. And and most of my colleagues, uh, and, and you know, that included Francis when, when he um, was alive, um, 
working on this problem. Most of them assume that, that there's a causal relationship, that, that neural activity somehow um, is responsible for causing our conscious experiences. And, and, and of course, you know, Francis freely admitted that he didn't know how that happened. He was coming up, he, he and Christoph and others were working on theories to try to explain that, but, but he freely admitted he didn't know, and, and his theories are just theories. But the idea was, just like with uh, you know, life, and vitalism, we, we didn't understand um, what life was. How, how could just physical systems become alive? Was there some Elan Vital that made that happen? Or, or what, was the, what was the trick for life? And uh, when, when Francis Crick, you know, with the discovery of DNA, the, the double helix and so forth, um, with, with, with Watson, uh, that all of a sudden unlocked a, a, a very big keen insight into replication and other properties of life that made them far less mysterious. It, it began to demystify life, and, and it made vitalism seem much more um, implausible. Uh, you know, certainly not necessary to explain life. We could actually now just talk, talk about DNA and 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 the encoding of, of information inside the DNA. And 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 Francis was hoping to do the same thing for for consciousness that he'd done for life, to demystify it by finding, in this case, the, the, the neural basis. Instead of a, a double helix basis, there'd be a neural basis for, for consciousness. And I'm really grateful to Francis because it, I, mean, I was starting to work on consciousness in the 1980s, but it wasn't kosher. You couldn't talk about it. So I wrote a book with <clears throat> Bruce and Chaitan called Observer Mechanics. <clears throat> what I really wanted was basically mechanics of consciousness, but we couldn't call it that. We'd be, we'd be dismissed. So so, but after Francis said it was okay to talk about consciousness, then you could talk about consciousness. So, so hats off to, to Francis for really making consciousness on the table as a scientific discipline and really, really helped to, to launch it. I mean, of course, there were people working on it before, but <clears throat> you had to sort of do it with a bit of disreputable <laughs> stuff going on because, you, you know, it was consciousness. And so, so that was what Francis said. We, we, we just needed to continue to look at the neuroscience until we found that key empirical bit of data that broke the whole thing open. So that's, so that's what, what he was doing. And <clears throat> some, but my take is there is, there are many theories of consciousness right now that start with physical systems like, like brains and neurons. So there's integrated information theory, which is, um, not restricted to brains and neurons. It's it's more functional in general. But 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 they are always looking at brains and neurons for their their applications. There's uh, orchestrated collapse of uh, neuronal molecular tubule quantum states. You know, Penrose and Hameroff. There's um, there, there's a whole there's global workspace theory. There are there are many many theories of, of consciousness that uh, it, it basically are looking for some aspect of neural activity or architectures neural architectures that will explain the emergence of consciousness. So the fundamental idea is you start with unconscious ingredients, space, time, and physical objects that are unconscious, you know, electrons, protons, all the particles of the standard model. These are all unconscious, but when you get them complicated enough and it's in complicated enough systems, then somehow their functional properties give rise to consciousness. And, and that's, I would say 99% of my colleagues in this field, um, that's the approach that they're, that they're taking. First, an important piece of data. There is no single 
theory on offer by anybody today. Integrated information theory, a global neuronal workspace theory, orchestrated class of microtubule quantum states that can explain any specific conscious experience. And, and by that, I mean, what is the specific pattern of integrated information that must be the taste of chocolate and could not be the smell of garlic? And I asked Tononi that question back in the 1990s, that when he came to UC Irvine and gave a talk to us, I asked him that question back then, and I asked him a couple of years ago. And, and the answer is, there's not any specific conscious experience right now that, that, that his theory can explain, and, and no theory. So I asked Stuart Hemeroff in front of an audience a few, few years ago, give me one. So Stuart, orchestrated collapse in neuronal microtubule quantum state. So what is the orchestrated collapse that must be the taste of whatever, you know, the mint or whatever? Can you give me one? And, I, you know, I had to push on him three or four times before he finally said he couldn't give me one. And that's the state of play. And, and this is not, in science, we're used to having a few successes. Here, here, there are no specific conscious experiences, period, anywhere that can be explained by any of these physicalist theories, none. The best they can do is to say we have these correlations between these sort of patterns of activity and being conscious or not. And we can go into later on why, what I think about those. But that's different than saying, I can explain how this conscious experience emerges. This particular, con there are no particular conscious experiences that can be explained. And so I think my take is that the, the failure is principled. The, the, these, by the way, these are my friends and colleagues. They're geniuses, many of them. They're brilliant. So they're not failing because they're dumb. They're failing because, unfortunately, their assumptions preclude any solution. You can't start with unconscious ingredients and boot up consciousness. And as soon as they recognize that, I think, and, and they start and start thinking about mathematical models of consciousness, qua consciousness, this field is going to explode because these guys are geniuses, guys in the general. So these people are geniuses, right? They're, they're brilliant. And as soon as they, you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are. If you're starting with earth, air, fire, and water, you're just not going to understand chemistry. You can't build chemistry on earth, air, fire, and water. It doesn't matter how smart you are. And that's the problem we've got. It doesn't matter how smart you are. If you start with physical systems in space and time, you cannot boot up a theory of consciousness. It's just not possible. So, so, but I came to that conclusion kicking and screaming. I was a physicalist. <laughs> Uh, you know, and so was my own mathematical models, and then understanding what evolutionary theory entails, um, and then really understanding what I think high energy theoretical particle physicists now are understand about space time. That all of that together has convinced me, despite my emotions, even though my emotions completely rebel intellectually, I'm, I'm completely convinced that the consciousness um, cannot be derived from anything inside space time. So, just to zoom out a bit, the idea that comes from Frick then is that continuing to search for NCCs in the same way that DNA revealed the mechanism for life's propagation and sophistication, and then despite its lack, again, the search for NCCs of success in the most crucial dimension, it may eventually lead to an understanding of the source of consciousness. So, that comes from Frick, but... Your thought is that we won't be able to do this because the whole framework is ill-founded on objects in space-time. Right. So I'll be very, very clear about what... So I think that Francis is right. We should study the neural correlates of consciousness. 
Absolutely. And we should study neuroscience. In fact, I think neuroscience needs more funding, not less, because neuroscience is a lot harder than we thought. It's a much, much harder discipline than we we thought when we look inside, you know, through microscopes inside brains and we see neurons and synapses and so forth, that that's what we're dealing with. No, that's a thin interface veneer of the reality we're dealing with. The reality is much, much more complicated. So we have to take what we see in terms of neural networks in the brain and reverse engineer it and ask what is the much deeper, more complex reality behind that. That's how we're going to get our understanding uh, of consciousness. Um, so, 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 so I, I agree with 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 Francis and and Francis. He was a truly stunning genius. I mean, I had the privilege of knowing him in his late seventies and eighties, and and he was quicker, sharper, had a better memory than I had in my twenties when he was than his, you know, it was, it was just truly stunning. Some people. Not only did he, you know, discover the genes, he had the genes. He had the right genes, <laughs> so he he was brilliant. But but I, you know, I, I it, it's still the case that you know, of course we need to study the neural correlates of consciousness. He's absolutely right about that. But the idea that once we understand those neural correlates, we'll understand how brain activity causes conscious experience. No, not not at all. We're understanding an interface level correlation. But that correlation does not mean that there's a brain causation. Even the fact you might someone might say, well, look, you know, Don, you just said a minute ago that if you lesion area V4 in the left hemisphere, you will lose color experience in the right visual field. What what better evidence of causation could you possibly have? And 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 the answer is that that's that's no evidence of causation at all. It, you know, it, 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 there is clean correlation. But but there's not causation. If I if I drag my you know, file icon, if I'm writing a book and I drag my file icon to the trash can, I will lose my book. Right? I, I, serious damage has been done. Does that mean that the actual motion of the icon on my desktop to the trash can that that motion of the icon caused my book to be deleted? No, it didn't. That that, that icon didn't cause anything. It's correlated, absolutely. There's a strong correlation between moving icons to the trash can and things disappearing. Strong correlation. Just like if you damage before, color disappears. So strong correlation, absolutely. But causation, absolutely not. Hmm. With regard to Frick's genius and quickness in his 70s and 80s, I spoke to... Tomsky on the podcast when he was 94, maybe he's 95 now, but it was just amazing to me how blisteringly quick he is. I mean, so much quicker than me. I can only imagine what he must have been like in his 20s, 30s, and 40s. It was just, it was pretty crazy just trying to keep up with him. I, I took a class from Chomsky when I was at MIT in like 1982. So that was. 41 years ago. So he, he was in his 50s, I guess, at the time. He was so smart, I had no idea how smart he was. That, that class, by the way, in that class was Jerry Fodor, who was a very brilliant psycholinguist and, and philosopher, and also Thomas Kuhn, the, the, one of the most famous philosophers of science of the 20th century. The three of well, them co-taught it? So, so it, was, it was team taught by Chomsky and Fodor, but, but Thomas Kuhn was in the class. 
And there were maybe 80 of us graduate students in there. And it was one of the highlights of my life uh, to be there. And, and, and Chomsky was clearly the intellectual king in the room. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that sounds like a legendary course to be in. It was, it was electrifying. It was, it, it was really, it, uh, I, I will never forget Chomsky. Fodor told us one day, Chomsky on the next class is going to tell us his solution to the mind-body problem. Oh boy! So I, you know, I, I was there, paper in pencil in hand, right front row, you know, up right, ready to go. And Chomsky told us, he said, um, "My solution to the mind body problem is that there is no mind body problem um, because the the there there we don't have a an adequate notion of body. Physics is an open and evolving field, and and physicists will take whatever new esoteric concept they need to explain what's going on. So." So unless we have, you know, a, a finally completed physics, we, we can't talk about what we mean by the mind-body problem. It's funny that you mentioned this anecdote about the mind-body problem, because when I spoke with him, he said that the biggest problem or the biggest mistake philosophers ever made was treating everything above the neck differently from everything below it. And it's funny because a lot of people that... I've spoken with about Chomsky, particularly linguists often say uh, or criticize him that he's been saying the same thing for 50 years, 40 years, 30 years. Well, if you're right, you're right. It's all I think you can. But it, I, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying Chomsky is always right, of course. No, no one's always right. But, but, but I will say this. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody more brilliant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, re returning to our line of thought, you mentioned one of the very interesting NCCs and its roles with the, it was the strokes and in V4 and the loss of color vision. I was hoping to ask you about a similar issue that hasn't come up on the podcast at all, but it's very curious. And that's of the, the corpus callosotomy. So the severing of the corpus callosum, which is the bridge between the brain's two hemispheres. What do the results of these procedures suggest about the basis of consciousness or its nature? Yeah, it's really quite intriguing. So your brain has two hemispheres, a left and a right hemisphere. And the two are connected by a cable that we call the corpus callosum. The cable has roughly 200 million 225 million axons, a little bit bigger in women than men. Their their brains, their hemispheres are slightly better connected than men's in general. And there were surgeries done a few decades ago for patients who had intractable epilepsy that couldn't be treated with drugs. And in cases where it was life-threatening and, and the quality of life was was terrible, they resorted to some serious surgeries. I actually knew one of the surgeons who who, who did this, Joe Bogan, he friend um, of mine. And what Joe and other surgeons involved in this would do was they would, you know, take off the skull cap a little bit and take a scalpel and and cut this band of fibers between the left and right hemisphere and the corpus callosum. Sometimes it would be the, the entire corpus callosum, but sometimes they'd only cut you know a part if they could get away with it, trying to. Do the minimal amount of damage they could to to the idea was that if you say had an epileptic focus, a, a bad area of the brain, 
say in the left hemisphere, that was causing the epileptic seizure, if you cut the corpus callosum, you could prevent the haywire electrical activity of the left hemisphere from spreading to the right hemisphere. So the right hemisphere could stay conscious and alert and, and help the person, you know, get through. But if, if, the, if the right hemisphere goes under, then you just collapse, you have, you know, convulsions, whatever it might be, it could be life-threatening. So the surgery, you can see it was a, it was a, a radical surgery, it was desperate, but it worked. It was, it was a clinical success. It actually um, reduced the frequency and, and, and severity of the epileptic seizures. So it, it was a clinical success. But the, the, Roger Sperry and others who studied these patients discovered that they had some very interesting dissociations of their consciousness. So I won't go into all the details, but what I will say is that the left hemisphere has a different consciousness than the right hemisphere, and, and even a different personality. So uh, my, my friend V.S. Ramachandran, who studied some of these, uh, he talks about one patient in which the left hemisphere, I believe, uh, um, is, I think the left hemisphere believes in God and the right hemisphere is an atheist. Right? They have different religious beliefs. The left hemisphere uh, wanted to be a have a desk job, and the right hemisphere wanted to be a race car driver. And, and so, and, and you can actually, um, the two hemispheres are so separate in their knowledge that they can play 20 questions. So you, you can say, uh, give the right hemisphere uh, a word or, or ask the right hemisphere to come up with a word. And, and then the left hemisphere has to guess what the word is. And, 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 and all the, <clears throat> the right hemisphere only say yes or no by maybe the right hemisphere controls the left hand. So maybe you can say, put thumb up for a yes, thumb down for a no. So, so the, the right hemisphere is thumb up or thumb down. The left hemisphere is guessing. And the left hemisphere, after 20 guesses, sometimes doesn't get it. So, so they talk about consciousness being severed. You, you can debate whether it's being severed or not, but when you can play 20 questions with yourself and lose, that suggests that there's a dissociation of consciousness that's pretty severe. And when you do classic experiments, like when you flash up on the screen very quickly, um, Two words like the phrase key ring. So key, you're looking straight ahead and key is to the left of where you're looking and ring is to the right of where you're looking. It, it, the right hemisphere will give evidence that it saw the word key and the left hemisphere will give evidence that it saw the word ring and no one gives evidence of having seen the phrase key ring. So there's all sorts of clean evidence again that a, an action on the brain Cutting the corpus callosum has profound consequences correlated with it on consciousness. So once again, and most of my colleagues would say, you know, clearly that shows that the neural activity must be causing the conscious experiences. But again, I, I, that's that's way too quick. But the data are clear that cutting of the corpus callosum um, is correlated with profound changes in conscious experiences. But, but that does not entail that the brain activity itself is causing the conscious experiences. Then that's that, that quick move that we all just think is so natural is the thing that's the impediment to making real progress here. Hmm. Since I know that you're very well versed in philosophy and philosophers' work on perception and consciousness, I wonder how sympathetic you are to Dan Dennett's idea that consciousness isn't just one thing, but a number of faculties that combine. And I think that this is this notion is 
supported by the evidence from corpus callosotomy since it shatters the illusion of a unitary consciousness. We can imagine toggling these NCCs, like the color representing capacity of the V4 region, on and off one by one until there's nothing left. So I'm, I know, I know Dan, and um, he's brilliant. Our theories of consciousness are, are are quite different, but he's he's a physicalist, and and actually, in in some cases, uh, he he seems to be an illusionist about consciousness. That we're, that what we think of as conscious experiences are an illusion, but but nevertheless, granting that, he still he he says what you said, with that there are multiple multiple drafts going on, and 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 I do think that that myself, so my own view is that um, it's very profitable. To think of consciousness as not just one thing, but as multiple different kinds of consciousness. And when we look at this cut of the corpus callosum, and we see two different personalities—one that that has you know that believes in God and one that doesn't—that that's pretty profound. Different changes, you know, different goals in life for their jobs, but those are profound differences um, in in conscious consciousness. So I think it's very useful for us as scientists to think about consciousness as being divisible, profitably using mathematical models in which we view consciousness as being divisible. And the mathematical model that I, my consciousation model does just that. It, it, it's, it's talking about what we call separate consciousations. It's also true though that that mathematics entails that ultimately there's just one consciousness. And these are all, all the separate consciousnesses are, are in some sense projections of one consciousness mathematically. And that, that's just a theorem that follows from our mathematical model. So I started off, you know, I, I didn't feel um, smart enough to get a mathematical model of, of one ultimate consciousness, but I thought I could start off with little mathematical models of, of smaller consciousnesses and work my way up. And that mathematical model did say that when you have more than one conscious agent, even if they're not interacting, just what we call their tensor product satisfies the definition of being a conscious agent. So it's another conscious agent. And so that leads you very quickly to the conclusion that there's one conscious agent, right? Take, out, take as many, say I have a, a countable infinity of conscious agents. Any subset of them is a conscious agent. So I could take the power set of this countable set. I'll have a new infinity, you know, ALF1 instead of ALF0, and ALF1, a bigger infinity of new conscious agents. I take the power set of that, I get ALF2, ALF3. So I, I go all the way up counters hierarchy uh, in terms of conscious agents, and that's pointing me that there is ultimately only one conscious agent, but I'll never get there because there's no end to Cantor's hierarchy. So so, so it's, it's a long technical response to your question, but, but I think it's absolutely necessary because I think ultimately there is one conscious agent, but... I see no way mathematically to ever treat it because I can't get to the end of Cantor's hierarchy. So all I can do is is look at individual projections as as separate unit entities, separate conscious entities and deal with that. That's all I can actually deal with and but somehow there this this combination has to be taken seriously and, and I'm still very I'm thinking quite a bit about that somehow these separate projections, when you look at their interactions, it really is, it, it, it takes seriously the idea that there really is a new entity 
a new consciousness, a, a useful unit of consciousness that's but nevertheless just a projection of this deeper infant. So I'm talking informally. Ultimately, what we have to do, um, and we can't do it, of course, on the podcast, is look at the mathematics and say, here's what... Sure, I understand. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's Siri giving her a bit. So, so have our, uh, all we can do as scientists is, is, is we can take the, the kind of informal discussions we're having right now and say, okay, let's make it mathematically precise and see what it means to talk about these individual consciousnesses. And, and the best I can say right now is that what it means is there is this one consciousness, but there are useful projections to smaller consciousnesses. And it's useful uh, analytically and theoretically to, to talk about them and to talk about their combination in part because we can never analyti analytically describe the one. So we, we have to do what we can do. Hmm. Well, I, I will save delving more deeply into conscious realism for later. But before we move on to perception, truth, and fitness, you, you and Dennett, as you said at the beginning, you have different views about consciousness. And earlier you referenced some of the other theories like global workspace. Now at bottom... You're a scientist, like you just said a minute ago. And I think you hinted at this earlier, but what would be the hallmarks of a scientific theory of consciousness? What are its desiderata? How would we know if we had one? What's what's the end goal that everybody is searching for? I'll answer it by first saying what I, as a physicalist, if I were a physicalist, what I would, my desiderata would be. Uh, I would say that I had succeeded with a physicalist theory if I could say, for example, in the case of integrated information, this specific Q-shape, this specific pattern of integrated information, for theoretical reasons, must be the taste of mint. And here's exactly why it must be the taste of mint and why it could not be anything else. That, and, and But not just one. I would want to have, you know, I would want to have accounts for thousands and thousands of conscious experiences. Right, I would be able. I want to account. Right, if I have a, a theory of electrodynamics, and I say, well, okay, I, I can account for this electron interaction, and I can account for why I get this kind of light from a photodiode, and I can account for, I, I, I can account for all these very specific things, and I, I can do it to, and I can predict the magnetic moment of the electron to, you know, eight decimal places or whatever it is now. So, I mean, if I can do that kind of stuff, then I, I, I'm not saying my theory is right, but that would be a sine qua non for me being happy with my theory. This is a theory that's worth overthrowing now. This is not a theory that should be ignored. This is a theory that's worth being overthrown. But if, if a theory cannot explain even one specific conscious experience, then... Now, that's for, physic for any physicalist theory. As soon as they can start to, to explain specific conscious experiences, not just is something maybe conscious or not... I, that, that's that's way too easy. Specific conscious experiences. Then I'm interested. That's what they now for someone like me. That's that's the scientist is saying. Okay, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not starting with physical stuff and trying to boot up consciousness. So what do I have to do? So I have to do a couple things before I have a theory that I'm happy with. I have to first have a mathematical theory of consciousness where it's the math is completely clear. But second, I need to then be able to explain something that I can measure in space time. Right, I need to be able to. So, so if I'm saying, so I'm going to propose that consciousness is not 
something that emerges from physical objects inside space-time. The standard story is that the universe began 13.8 billion years ago, although recent data suggests maybe double that now. Maybe it's 27 billion years ago. We'll see. Um, Big Bang was a long time ago. But it, but the idea is that uh, there were no conscious entities to begin with. There was just you no, know, the the maybe the you know the precursors of the particles of the standard model of physics right now. The 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 bosons, leptons, and quarks, but nothing conscious, and and then consciousness emerged later on. Um, so. I'm I'm starting with a completely different framework than that. That you know that says you know the consciousness emerges from physical stuff. I'm saying there's consciousness prior to space time period, and so for that kind of model, I need to be able to say what the dynamics is, and I need to be able to say what in space time, like the, that we think of as particles, like you know electrons that have mass and position, momentum, and spin. I want to get those properties, specific properties, from my theory of conscious agents. So, so for me, success to begin with, just a, a first baby step success would be a theory of conscious agents that it, it gives you clean predictions for what's happening inside a proton, the, the quarks and gluons inside that predicts the, the distribution of momenta um, in, of the, at, at all the... Q square and in and, you know, and um, the, the the very basically the the temporal and spatial resolutions that 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 um, that the um, physicists have, have probed so far. If I can start with a theory of consciousness outside space time and actually give you the innards of the proton precisely, and there's there's many decades of data on this. So if I can first tell you this is what this property of a dynamics of consciousness agents corresponds to the mass. This corresponds to momentum. This corresponds to energy. Here's spin, and and here is um, distance. You know, this is what corresponds to distance. I need to do that first. So I need to show. So instead of showing how consciousness emerges from physical particles, I have to show how a theory of consciousness gives rise to all the properties of physical properties, including their spatial distributions. Not because I think that's the most interesting thing to do with a, th- a theory of consciousness. It's not. But it's it's what I have to do to show that I'm I'm onto something that's worthwhile, and that would just be the baby start. Once I've got the innards of the proton, um, I need to crawl my way up. So now, how about the nucleus of an atom, and then the atom itself, and then molecules, and then macromolecules, and then and then climb all the way up to neuroscience. You, you might say, well, Hoffman, you know, why don't you go straight to neuroscience? Because there we have the nice clean neural correlates of cut. And and the answer is. The same reason why I do addition before I try to do calculus. I mean, you, you got to start simple and and work your way up. Yeah, the neural correlates are are our ultimate target, but that's way too complicated. I need to go down. My, my baby step is going to be protons and, and the inner structure because that's the simplest thing we know. That's the that's the, the the simplest we can do, and that's where we also have very very hard data. So that's what. So I, I, I you know in some sense I. Of course, I'm interested in protons, but but not more interested in protons than the brain. But the reason I'm going after protons is because just science. I mean, it's just, it's just that's where you have the best shot of making a connection, and also where there's so much data that if you don't have it, 
the data is going to say, no, you don't have it right. If your mass is off in the third decimal place, your mass is off in the third decimal place. You don't have that kind of accuracy in, in neuroscience yet. So, so that's where I'm going after. So that's my, my long answer to your short question. For the physicalist, they need to start with physical systems and explain specific conscious experiences. Or frankly, I'm not terribly interested. There's nothing on the table. And for me, to, to get my colleagues interested, I have to explain exactly the momentum distribution of quarks and gluons inside the proton. I've got to get it right to several decimal places. And, and that doesn't mean I'm right, but at least it means um, if I'm wrong, it's still interesting. It's interesting to figure out where it's wrong. And, and of course, any theory is wrong in the sense that it's at best a limited version of something deeper. Well, your long answer to my short question is great. <laughs> a theory of, of consciousness that predicts what's going on in a proton is so far from the mainstream physicalist idea, which is very cool, very ambitious, and I'm glad we're talking about it. <laughs> and I also like that you brought up Mint <laughs> at the beginning of your response, just because I know how important it is with regard to your case study of a, a synesthetic that you write about. And hopefully we'll come back to that later. But now I think we're ready to move again, move over or toward the case against reality itself. So where I thought we ought to begin is this. What is it that makes the concept of, or maybe more accurately, our perception of beauty so special to the extent that it's your First piece of evidence in the line of argument charging that our perception is very, very misleading. Oh, right. So in, in my book, I talk about our perception of beauty partly because I think it's a good introduction to evolutionary ideas. What is it that we find attractive? Uh, and, and most people are interested in that topic anyway. So I, I talked about it in my book because, you know, it's, 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 it's a fun topic. We're, we all have a natural interest in it. And, and there are, you know, surprising results from evolutionary theory. And, and one of the things that comes out of the evolutionary theory is that for, first, um, our, our feeling of, of sexual attractiveness is really, uh, from an evolutionary point of view, a sophisticated inference um, where we use lots of sensory information. Uh, we, we, you meet a person... And within just a few hundred milliseconds, your, your senses are picking up all sorts of visual, auditory, and, and smell information. And, and you're doing one of the most sophisticated computations you do in your entire life. You're estimating the reproductive fitness of the person in front of you. Uh, how likely is it that this person could have and raise successfully children? That, that, so you're not you're not consciously thinking. You're just thinking this person looks great, or you're thinking they don't look great. You know, whatever it might be. Yeah, you know, I have a scale from hot to not, and then you know that's 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 just your knee jerk reaction. Um, but what's going on behind that emotional reaction is a very sophisticated computation where you're literally evaluating scores and scores of que of cues, and and the cues themselves are, are not always. Um, consistent. So they're contra they, they give contradictory information. And so you're adjudicating among all these cues and coming up with a bottom line. What is the reproductive potential of this person? How likely are they to successfully have uh, and raise kids to be a good father or mother, basically? And 
so and and that the output of that sophisticated computation is a feeling that you could you know on a scale from zero to ten, for example. That, that that's a feeling that you that you get, and and it's not just humans that have this, but but you know all sorts of um, other species are evaluating um, potential mates. And you know, there's the, the the very humorous one of the the jewel beetle, um, mm-hmm. the stubbies. Which, yeah, the, the, that's right. So the the jewel beetle is um, as beetle. There are many of them in in Australia and the outback, and they're they're dippled, glossy, and brown. And the the males fly, and the females are flightless. But the males fly around looking for you know females, and when he finds one that looks good, he he you know. Lights and mates, um, and the the funny thing is that uh, a lot of Australian guys um, drinking these beers, the bottles called that he calls stubbies. They're short brown bottles that are that are dimpled, glossy, and just the right shade of brown to tickle the fancy of these beetles. The guys, you know, the, these Australian guys throwing their beer bottles out in the outback, and and the and the the, the jewel beetle males were flocking all over these bottles. They're just crawling all over them because those bottles chicked off every. Everything that the, the the male was looking for here. This is a female. She's dimpled, glossy, and brown, and and she's huge. Just, just, and and even when the males beetles are crawling on the bottle, they have full body contact with the bottle. They cannot. They they still are. They're swooning over this bottle. They're trying to mate with this bottle. So so you know what we think of as beauty and attractiveness. Clearly, you start to see that. So evolution. From an evolutionary point of view, that is what I just described. It, it's an estimate of the reproductive potential of the person or the entity in front of you. The the jewel beetle is doing it as well. He's making an estimate, you know, an estimate of the reproductive potential of this. And in his estimate, that that bottle, that that stubby, is really really hot. So he's all over it, and and the species, you know, would have gone extinct actually probably if they had to, you know. Help those beetles save the species. It was really quite strong. So, so what's going on here? Clearly, evolution didn't give the uh, male jewel beetle a, a true insight into what a real female beetle was. It gave him a simple trick, a little hack. A, a, a female, an eligible female, is something dippled, glossy, and brown. The bigger, the better. That, that, that's apparently some little trick like that, and it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. You, you, on the one hand, you need to do the computations to determine whether something is an eligible female, but you also need to make the computations as simple and inexpensive as possible because computations require calories. And for every calorie that you waste or, or spend on you know, computations, you have to go out, kill something and eat it to get those calories. And so there are selection pressures to do things on the cheap. And so that's going to be, and that's one of the, the points that, that you know, Pinker makes in his book, How the Mind Works, and, and also his paper, so how does the mind work? Well, he wonder if, so Pinker points this this kind of thing out. So I'm not saying anything new here. This is this is sort of um, you know brilliant guys like Pinker have have been saying this. So I'm just just repeating what what is standard in evolutionary theory. Where where I go go beyond is is to is to say that you know evolution itself is a physicalist theory, and we have to actually go beyond space time so that. I love evolutionary theory, and within space-time, it's the right theory. It's the right theory of biological evolution. But if we're going to have a theory of consciousness outside of space-time, 
it better project into space-time and show us where evolution by natural selection comes out as a special case. That that's, that that gets into another f- philosophy thing about the philosophy of science and and the sequence of scientific theories that we have in science. That if we and we may want to talk about that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, for the moment though, since you're totally right that we are all so interested in attractiveness and. Probably, to be fair, though, more human attractiveness than beetle attractiveness. And I also know that you're an expert on facial attractiveness. How does some of the research on iris sizes and limbal rings, which are a term that some of most of our listeners actually probably won't be familiar with, support this contention about perceptions disconnect from truth? That's right. So when you look at a person's face... You also get a hit of attractiveness or not of, of that face. And there are many, many cues that you use. Again, unconsciously, this is automatic. And uh, among them are, I mean, there are many, many cues, but one that, that uh, I talk about in my book and, and one that uh, I work with a graduate student of mine, Darren Peshek, who, who did a lot of uh, great work on this. What, what we worked on was the idea that if you look at a, a human person's eye closely, you, you can see the white of the eye. Then there's the dark iris. And if the iris is not too dark, you can sometimes see a little ring right where the white of the eye, the so-called sclera, meets the iris. There's a ring. For, for people with blue eyes or, or, or light brown, very light brown eyes, you can see this much, much more easily. You, you can see a, a ring. And it, 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 so I was looking at that ring in, in various pictures. I realized that it looked to me like in babies, the ring looked more distinct and bigger, relatively speaking than in adults. And and that was really interesting to me because that suggested that the ring then could be a cue to age and also to health. If you have if your eye if your eye gets old and gets cloudy, then you can't see the iris or that limbal ring very well. So having a clear and thick limbal ring would indicate a healthy eye and could also indicate Again, statistically, youth. So, so that was just the intuition I had. So, I had a lot of my students. We we they got hundreds of pictures of photos of people of various ages, and and zoomed in on the eyes and measured the the width of the limbal rings. And we got a statistical distribution that showed that yes, as you age, the relative width of the limbal ring declines um, with age. And so we made the the clean prediction that a a clear and thick limbal ring would increase the attractiveness of a person. Um, also, I predicted that um, the, the youth aspect would be, it, it turns out that it's slightly more important in male ratings of female attractiveness to emphasize youth. Um, Youth is also important in, in female ratings of, of male attractiveness, but not quite as strong. Not quite as strong as, as male ratings of female attractiveness. So we also, you know, thought there could be some differences in male and female ratings. And and so the experiment, one of the experiments we did was we would take a picture of, of some face, some guy's face or some woman's face, and we would just make a two picture, the same picture twice in front of the person, but in one picture we altered the limbal rings and made them a little bit thicker. That's all we did. Otherwise, the pictures were identical. And, and, and so the, the person, their instruction would be to sit down, you're going to look at a screen and you're going to see two faces, pick which one is the most attractive, just left button or right button for left or right face. 
and we, they start doing the, and then they, many times they, the subjects would be confused. They're the same face. Uh, uh, you're asking me to judge each, and the faces are just exactly the same. We say, well, just humorous. Just, just go with your gut. Just pick one. And so, consciously, they thought the faces were identical, but unconsciously, they well above chance picked the face that had the thicker level ring. They 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 actually were getting the signal of attractiveness, even though they they weren't consciously aware of it. So so there are many. Once you start going down this path, there are many many different cues that you can study. So the white of the eye can be it, it, it's the sclera is slight is more slightly bluish in infants than in adults. It's a little bit thinner, and there's a choroid layer underneath it that's blue, and so you get a slight so so a, a slight bluish tint to the white of the eye is a signal of youth, whereas a slight yellowish tint is is a signal of older age and also of ill health. Statistically, again, these are all statistical things. This is not absolute. So another prediction is as you if you take someone's eyes and you especially for like a female's eyes, you make them just a little bit bluish on the, on the whites of the eyes. That's going to be a signal of, of youth. You may not want to do that with male eyes because you don't want, women aren't interested in kids. They don't want boys, they want men, right? So, so, so you have to be careful. What, what you do for a woman's face is not the same as what you're going to do for a man's face on the eyes. But, but, so, but when, we, when we do this, it again works. You, you get the ratings of attractiveness to come out as, as, as you expect. And all under the radar, no one do be, so you can actually use this. This is stuff you can use on your Facebook page or whatever. You can take your, if you want to look more attractive, there are things you can do. Just go to your eyes, go in there in Photoshop, make your, again, be careful. If you're a guy, don't give yourself too, too blue an eye because now you can start to look a little bit too boyish. But you can make it slightly, if you're a woman, you can make a slightly bluer uh, sclera, make a slightly thicker limbal ring, um, and, and you will be more attractive. There are many, that, those are just two, there are many, many things you can do. Hmm. Well, I think the natural question to ask is, how can I make my limbal rings thicker and my sclera bluer? But I'm guessing, guessing that that's not possible. Well, that's in, I was talking about in Photoshop, taking taking Right, right. Is it possible in, in actual? Oh, in everyday life? Oh. Uh, w well, you can make it um, less... You can make your sclera, the white of the eye, less yellow by by living a healthy life. So eating well, uh, you know, and not less smoking. Ice cream, maybe. In other words, it, it, these are actual honest indicators of your fitness. So, so, so if you want your eyes to look fit, the 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 way to do it is to be fit. Actually, eat well, sleep well, take good care of yourself, and ultimately, the best thing you can do is be young. Right. <laughs> That's the best thing you can do for yourself is be young. And you know, I'm 67, so I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, we'll get back to the explicit connection or disconnect might be more apt between fitness and truth with the FBT theorem. Uh, but just like with physicalism and consciousness, I think it would behoove us to look at the main view opposite your own. And now this is where David Marr enters again. So he's come up on the podcast once before in connection just briefly with Mars levels of explanation. But since, like I mentioned earlier, he was your advisor before his very early death and his ideas about veridical perception are a foil to yours, maybe we could start by giving a charitable recounting of his position. 
before moving oh, well, on to your own. Yeah, I wouldn't have to be charitable. I mean, I, David was my advisor. He was a genius. Um, he's responsible for getting me into this field. It was reading his papers when I was an undergraduate at UCLA, taking a, a, a class. We read one of Mars papers that electrified me. That's what got me to go to MIT and and, and study visual perception. So, so I owe my life's direction to David Marr. And he was a, a brilliant advisor and, and, um, uh, I, but on this point, we, we disagree. And that's, that's the nature of science. You know, you, you liking your advisor doesn't mean that you're always going to agree with them. In fact, they want you to disagree if you can do it intelligently. So Marr argues in his book and his, and it's a great book. His book is called vision. I, I highly recommend it published in like 1982 his, his book. Um, and he, he argues in the case of um, less complicated organisms like flies, that their visual systems don't actually tell them the truth, that they just give them um, data that they need to, to you know, fly as they need to fly. So he, but he says, when you get to more complicated organisms like humans, um, we actually estimate the true shapes and orientations of, of surfaces of objects in our environment. So he was very interested in the, what he called the 2.5D sketch or, and also 3D models. 2.5D sketch was basically looking at your whole world around you and un understanding all the surfaces that you could see and the shapes of those surfaces, the slant and tilt of the surface normals and so forth. And, and so he thought that we get more or less accurate estimates and that, that evolution shaped us to have more or less accurate estimates because we were complicated enough. So as so his idea was as you get more and more complicated organisms with more and more compute power, natural selection is going to more likely have them have true representations of, of what they need. Whereas if you're too simple, yeah, you know, a fly just doesn't have enough neurons to get it right. So it just has to do little tricks and hacks. So that was sort of Mars idea. Um, and so I, you know, I disagree with Mar. Um, I, I agree with him on the fly. The, the fly just has tricks and hacks, but but I but I say that the same is true of, of human beings that our, our perceptions themselves are, are just a user interface, which ultimately um, is so simplified compared to the objective reality that um, it's a, essentially a trick and a hack as well. The, we think of space-time as the fundamental nature of reality and physical objects as, as, as real entities inside that, that, that fundamental physical reality. And it's really just a headset and icons inside that headset. And it's in that sense that, that I, I call them tricks and hacks. It's more sophisticated than what the fly is doing, perhaps, but compared to the reality, it's still trivial. Hmm. Though this doesn't come from David Marr, I took a, a quote from your book that I think sums up the veridical perception view, though maybe you'd like to give your own gloss on it, and I have it over here, and it is uh, from Zygmunt Piswo and his colleagues who tell us, and now I'll quote them, that veridicality is an essential characteristic of perception and cognition. It is absolutely essential. Perception and cognition without veridicality would be like physics without the conservation laws. Zig, 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 Zig is a good friend of mine. And he's, uh, you know, 
we, we debate this, but I actually voted to have him join my, my faculty in my department. So he's a member of my department here at UC Irvine. And I, I invited him to come knowing full well that he completely disagrees with me. That's the way science works. You, you want to have uh, smart people who disagree with you. And so Zig and I disagree. He, he, I think he, he thinks I'm off the rocker, um, you know, with, with these ideas. He thinks that there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't believe that we've been shaped to see um, truly what, what's out there. And I think many, I think most of my colleagues would agree with them. I, I think that they think of, of course, we don't get everything exactly right, but what we're, the standard view in my field is, is something called Bayesian estimation. That basically what the visual system is doing is estimating the true shapes and colors and motions and whatever textures of, of physical objects. So we, we have data that we get at the retina, or if you're you know, a computer vision person, you have some kind of video cameras, you're getting sensor data, and you, you have to take that data and, and then make the best Bayesian estimates you can about the true shapes, colors, motions, and textures. And so that's what Zig is, is up to. He's, you know, he's, he's using that kind of Bayesian analysis to try to figure out, um, you know, if we're going to make a self-driving car with, with camera systems, you have to take that video that's coming in. It's just just video. It's just, it's just color. This this pixel has this color. That pixel has that color and that brightness. That's all you got. You have to take all that and say and interpret it. And interpret, oh, there's a boy riding a bicycle, and I need to I need to break my car so I won't don't hit. So that requires an incredible amount of, of inference and incredible amount of computer processing. That's why self driving cars are still not a thing. We thought that they would be a thing as of 2023. They're still not a safe thing yet. Um, you, you still have, you are still responsible for driving your car. It can help you, but no one's letting go of the wheel completely yet. I, it'll eventually happen, but but the fact that it ha hasn't happened yet shows how difficult this problem is. And so most of my colleagues, in, including my friend Zig, um, are, are saying that what we're doing is estimating the truth. And that's what my advisor Mar said as well, that we were estimating the truth. And that's what I believed. I mean, I, I went to study with Mara. I thought that was right. Um, but but I don't think it's right anymore. Hmm. Well, now that we have the verticality account on the table, and I think it captures very well the folk intuition that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, that I think the way you put it, that our senses or our eyes are a window onto reality as it is. I think it's a good time now to move to the FBT theorem or uh, the fitness beats truth theorem. So why and how does it tell us that natural selection, which produced our brains and consequently these perceptual system we've been talking about, does not favor vertical perceptions? Uh, maybe as evidenced by some of the examples we've been discussing, like the Australian beetles and the limbo rings. Right. So it turns out that you can use evolution by natural selection as a mathematically precise theory. There's something called evolutionary game theory. So there's no hand waves now. This is a, this is a, a mathematical instantiation of Darwin's ideas, evolutionary game theory. And you can ask a clean technical question using that mathematics. The, the question is this, what is the probability that natural selection would shape any sensory system to see any true features of objective reality? Clean technical question. You can ask that of, of, of the math. And the, the answer that comes back is uh, clear as well. 
is precisely zero. The probability is precisely zero that any sensory system has ever been shaped to see any aspect, any aspect of objective reality truthfully. Probability is precisely zero. That doesn't mean that it can't happen. It, it means that um, you would bet the farm that it's not going to happen. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It, it could happen, but the probability is, is zero that, that it will happen. And um, the way that, one way that you can see that is evolution, when you think about evolutionary game theory, there's something, when you play a game, like a video game, you, you, if you try to win in the game, you're, you, you try to get points as fast as you can. You're, you're, you're trying to do whatever you do to get points. And if you get enough points, you go to the next level of the game, right? Well, in evolution, there's a evolutionary game theory. There's a similar, there's something about what do you have to do? How do you get points in evolutionary theory? Well, Ultimately, the, the ultimate payoff is, to, is that not that you go to the next generation, but your, your genes, your, you have kids, your genes go to the next generation, okay? But what corresponds to the payoffs, well, well in, in, or the points in the game, is something called payoff functions in evolutionary theory. So, in, you know, when you have games, you have payoffs. If, it, if I have this strategy in a game, I'll get this payoff. If I do this strategy, I'll get this other payoff. Um, so... Payoff functions then in evolutionary theory are functions that, that take an organism, its state, its action, and the state of the world, and they and they give you a payoff. If 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 this organism is is, is in this position in the world and is and the organism is in this state and it takes this action, it gets this many payoff points. You know, maybe payoffs go from zero to a thousand, whatever you want it. Um and, and and that's the way evolutionary game theory works. Is you you have different strategies. So you know when a, an organism is in this situation, if it does this, the act of doing this, that's what we call a strategy. If you systematically do this kind of thing in this situation, that's a strategy. And the payoff function gives you what kind of reward points will you get for that strategy. So in evolutionary theory, you're just having various strategies compete with each other. Uh, and the strategies have different payoffs, and and you and you and you then um, do the game the game theoretic analysis to see which strategy will will dominate, will win over the other strategies. Well, so we looked at there's several ways to prove this FBT theorem, but one way that I think is is the cleanest is to just say look at those payoff functions. They they depend on the state of the world, so they're a mapping from the world, whatever the world is into these payoff values, say zero to a hundred. Now, if that payoff function is going to allow evolution to shape my sensory system to see some truth about the world, then the payoff function better preserve some information about that truth of the world. In other words, that if the payoff functions that are that are the only thing that's guiding my evolution, they're the thing that determines whether I live or die, whether my strategy lives or dies. If those payoff functions have no information about some feature of the world, then I can't be tuned by those payoff functions to the feature by the world, except by accident. But they will not tune me to it, right? I might accidentally go to it, but but there will be no selection pressures to it. So. Mathematically, what I just said is, is this. What is the probability that a payoff function is a homomorphism 
of some structure in the world. So there's some structure in the world. What is the probability that the payoff function preserves it mathematically? That is, what does it mean? What is the probability that it's a homomorphism? So it turns into a clean mathematical question. You can take any structure you're interested in. So maybe a total order, like um, one is less than two is less than three, less than, that's a total order. Or a partial order, or a metric, things in distances, the, the, a metric structure, or a topology structure. There's all, all kinds of different structures that you can imagine might be true of the world. And you can say for each one of those structures that might be true of the world, what is the probability that a generically chosen payoff function is a homomorphism, contains information about that structure? That is a clean mathematical question. And so I took it to a brilliant mathematician friend of mine, Chetan Prakash, who I've worked with for 35 years. I worked on it a little bit, but he's the real mathematician. Um, if, if it were just me, it wouldn't have been done. And, and the answer is, in case after case, every case that we've looked at so far, probability is zero. The probability, in other words, if you look at the set of all possible payoff functions, and you can write them down, say I have 100 possible payoff values, and, and I say the world has, you know, 20 billion states, I can write down how many payoff functions there are and do the combinatorics. That's how many payoff functions there'd be. How many of those payoff functions would actually be homomorphism? There will be homomorphism. Absolutely. There will be functions that preserve that information. Absolutely. That's not the question. The question is, if we put the number of homomorphisms in the numerator and put the total number of payoff functions in the denominator and, and then let the look at the ratio as the number of states in the world and the number of payoff values increases to infinity. What is the um, probability of a homomorphism? You know, the, and and it goes to zero in every case. It goes to zero. In other words, the probability is zero that a, a generically chosen payoff function would shape any system to see the truth. Now. One could push back and say, well, maybe you're wrong in treating all the payoff functions equally. Maybe we're maybe evolutionary theory is biased towards the ones that are homomorphisms. And <clears throat> I say, perfectly fine if you want to go there. That is not standard evolutionary theory. Right, right. Standard evolutionary theory um, right now says that all all the payoff functions are equally likely. So you would have to have a new evolutionary theory. And you'd have to justify it. So what is the new fact about reality? And what is the evidence for this new fact about reality that allows you to put a bias on the set of payoff functions such that the ones that are homomorphic, the ones that actually preserve structures of, of the world, um, are more likely? Now, no one has yet taken up that challenge. But, but if someone wants to, to take up that challenge, I'd be very anxious to see what their theory was. Um, but right now, current evolutionary theory is very, very clear. I should now immediately talk about two criticisms of the theory that, that have come out. Um, first from philosophers and then from cognitive scientists. Um, I, I get the same criticism almost all the time from philosophers. And that is that it's, I've shot myself in the foot logically. So, and they, the argument at top level goes like this. Darwin has a theory of evolution of natural selection in which there are real physical organisms competing for real physical resources 
and really dying in a physical world. Now, Hoffman is using the mathematics of evolutionary game theory to test whether there are such things as real physical organisms or real physical resources. Now, either the mathematics of evolutionary game theory faithfully models Darwin's ideas, or it doesn't. If it doesn't, Hoffman couldn't possibly use evolutionary game theory to disprove these fundamental ideas of Darwin's about you know real resources and real organisms. And if it does faithfully, if, if mathematics of evolutionary game theory does faithfully model Darwin's ideas, it couldn't possibly contradict them. Either way, Hoffman is in what philosophers call a, an unfortunate dialectical situation. <laughs> right? In other words, he shot himself in the foot. That's what, So, you know, poor, poor stupid Hoffman, he shot himself in the foot. He used the mathematics of evolutionary theory to, to shoot evolutionary theory itself in the foot, and therefore to shoot the mathematics in the foot. And so he's, he, he, he couldn't be, it couldn't be dumber. Couldn't be more stupid than doing that. So, so my reply is that this argument completely misunderstands the nature of scientific theories and the nature of scientific progress. So first, scientific theories. Scientific theories can never be a theory of everything. No scientific theory can ever be a theory of everything. Every scientific theory says, grant me, please, this handful of assumptions. Grant me these assumptions. If you grant me these assumptions, those assumptions give me a scope of problems that I can solve for you. But there are also limits. No theory is a theory of everything. Uh, if you, so, so take Einstein and his theory of space-time, right? He grant him a couple assumptions, you get his theory of space-time. And, and you grant those assumptions. If you grant them you get all this stuff that he can explain. So the, there's an incredible scope to his theory. But there's also a limit. And his mathematics tells you the limits. His notion of space-time falls apart at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. The point of your mathematics... So, so by the way, everybody knows the story about Einstein, that he had his intuition about general relativity, about being in an elevator and the standing on a, a scale, seeing your weight, and then all of a sudden the elevator cord gets cut and the elevator drops, all of a sudden your weight goes to zero. If you were said, all of a sudden your weight would be zero. That was his big idea, but it took him seven or eight years to take that idea and turn it into the mathematics of general relativity. And it was he was Einstein. So this brilliant guy took him seven or eight years to turn the idea into the mathematics. But once he did it, he, he took his idea, he got the mathematics of general relativity, that mathematics, together with his other work on quantum theory, entails that the very idea behind the mathematics of space-time, that idea falls apart at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. So the point of the math is this. It tells you the scope and the limits of your fundamental assumptions. And that's the key point. A good scientific theory, when you, when you write down the mathematics to capture your intuition, the mathematics does not succeed if it tells you that your theory is a theory that will never fail. No, that, that, that's, that's, that's not the point. The point is the mathematics has really done its job when it tells you the scope and the limits of your concepts. So that's what I'm doing with, with Darwin's theory. We're using evolutionary game theory to show you there's incredible scope, but there's also limits. The very concept of objects in space and time itself, the theory tells you 
that is one place where the theory has a problem. And that's beautiful. When the theory points and says, this is the a limit of this theory, the very concept of a real physical object being the fundamental nature of reality cannot be correct. Now, what, the, what Darwin's theory and, and the, my work in evolutionary game theory with Chaitan and others, uh, and by the way, I should mention Brian Marion and Justin Mark and, and my grad, you know, graduate students and others who work with me on this. Um, what that mathematics does is it, it tells you um, the scope and the limits and every scientific theory is going to have the same issue. Every scientific theory, if it's if the mathematics is done right, will tell you the limits of that theory. But the theory will not tell you what your next move needs to be. Right? So Einstein's theory tells us that space-time falls apart at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. Great. Does it tell us what to do next? No. It, it, it just says this theory stops there. So we have to take a creative, then that's the fun part of science. You get now, and this is usually the the old, you know, the the older guys die with their theories, and the younger guys are the ones who who jump in and get the new bold hypothesis, right? So you have to then jump beyond the limits of your old theory with new ideas, write down the mathematics, which will have its own scope and limits. But one constraint on your new theory is you better give back the old theory as a special case. So. If you can't do that, then there's no reason to take you seriously. I mean, evolutionary theory is not the final word, but it is a incredibly beautiful and powerful theory. We have nothing anywhere close to it. And there's nothing close to it. So if your deeper theory does not give you back evolution with natural selection as a special case, I'm not interested in it. I just have no interest. You're not doing the right thing. And the same thing for whatever is beyond space-time. You know, space-time is, is not fundamental. Whatever theory you're going to come up with beyond space-time, be as creative as you want to. Whatever you need to do, drinking beer, taking drugs, whatever it is, to get your idea. But then eventually you have to turn it into math and you better get back Einstein's special and general relativity and quantum field theory as special cases of this more general theory. Or, or, or you're just not interesting. You're just not interesting. So that's how. So that's my reply to um, the, the philosophers on, on this. Yeah. Is I'm not in some unfortunate dialectical situation. This is the way science progresses. This is just just the way it works. The mathematics, if it properly captures the intuitions of a theory, in the best case, it will then tell you the limits of those intuitions. They will tell you where they stop. And what I'm saying is that the mathematics of evolutionary game theory tells us that that Darwin's, of course, Darwin's intuitions were incredible. What a genius! But the very notion of objects in space-time itself, we have to let go. We'll have to have a deeper theory. Now, there's that's from the philosopher side, from the cognitive scientist side. The the common argument that I get is, well, if you have you know, not just one fitness payoff function, but a lot of fitness payoff functions, and you throw the fitness payoff functions at this organism fairly quickly, and then, then effectively, the organism can't be tuned to any one fitness payoff function, and so the best thing to be is to be tuned to the truth. So, an organism that's, that's constantly facing a lot of different fitness payoffs, one after another, will eventually be tuned just to the truth. Now, what's remarkable about that, to me, right off the bat, is first, uh, effectively, they're 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 saying um, the pay the the fitness payoffs themselves 
never actually shake the sensory systems or they don't shape the, the fit the, the fitness payoff functions themselves come and go so quickly that they actually don't they don't actually affect the selection process they're they're not what that that actually so this this argument from the get-go fundamentally throws throws away the whole point of evolutionary game theory the fitness payoff functions are there to actually talk about the selection process but well i'll just put that to the side One group said, so we have all these fitness payoff functions, and we're going to say that there's only one mapping from the world. If there's only one mapping from the external physical world onto our uh, you know, perceptual representations, and, and you have all these you know, changing fitness payoff functions, then you will be selected to you know, see just the truth. That'll be the, the maximum payoff thing. Um, so I disagree with the argument that there's only one mapping from the external world to sensory representations. In the case of, um, you know, one concrete example is, is that in, in vision, we have what's called the dorsal and the ventral stream. So in vision, you get, um, if I look at a, like a, a green apple, um, I get one representation of the green apple in my dorsal stream. And it's a, a representation that lets me do one kind of task with it, which is like to recognize what it is. And I get a different one in the in in the that that's the ventral stream in the dorsal stream. I get a different representation, more about how I can manipulate it, how I can handle it, how how I might throw it or, or walk around it or whatever it might be. So you get you know, the, the the claim that there's only one representation um, goes out the window, and we actually have multiple representations with all the different sensory systems that we have. Right, the the, the different modalities for different representations. And and we also have, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just stop there, but I'll, I'll just say when you allow that there could be multiple mappings from the objective world into your perceptual representations, then you, and then you start doing what, what we can call clustering analysis. Suppose, so imagine that there are, you know, 20,000 fitness payoff functions that, that are, that are relevant. Well, what you might do is start to cluster them. And say, so you do hierarchical clustering and say, well, these these payoff functions are very similar, and these are so. Let's let's build a, a mental representation of, of of this group of, and another mental representation of this group, and and I think that that's what we did, and that's what we call physical objects. What we call physical when I see an apple versus a, a, a pencil versus a fork. What I'm doing is I'm doing that's part of this hierarchical clustering. I'm taking all these different fitness payoff functions. I'm grouping them together and saying, this group, I will call an apple. This group. So once again, the idea is not that we don't see the truth, but that what's going on is we see roughly 30,000 different kinds of objects, basic level categories of objects. And that's just due to the different kinds of hierarchical clustering that we do so that we can actually, when we do the hierarchical clustering, then we can get the maximum fitness payoff we can get from that cluster because the payoff functions are all similar in in their function. So when you actually... Rerun the simulations that might that these cognitive scientists have run to try to show that we're wrong. Rerun the simulations with allowing hierarchical clustering. Then you find out that no truth does not win the the payoffs, the fitness payoffs. At this point, I think that there are two directions in which we should go, or or two things that we should touch on, and I'll just list them. The first is I think it would be nice to bring the FBT theorem down to earth a bit by discussing maybe how 
it relates to one of the concrete examples we've touched on. So like the, the stubby, the beetles and the stubbies or something like that. And then uh, the other thing, so you can hop on these at will is that I'd like to return to something that you said at the beginning of your, your response. So you said that the FBT theorem revolves around this simple question. What is the probability that a sensory system would be shaped by or shaped to perceive objective reality. And I think that the phrasing of this question, at least prima facie, presupposes the existence of and some sort of understanding of objective reality. And so what I'm wondering in this case is if you want to abandon space-time and the objects we conceive of as situated in the same, then just how do you think of objective reality as it's referenced in the question, or maybe this is a fact that isn't necessary to unpack for purposes of the FBT theorem. Well, maybe I'll just talk about that briefly first and then go to the sure, sure. The other. Um, we often get the question, you know, how in the world could you possibly prove that we don't see reality unless you actually knew what reality was? Right? You know, come on, Hoffman, you got yourself, you're shooting yourself in the foot again, right? If you, you don't, you, you have to assume that you know reality is to prove that we that we're not seeing it, and 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 the point is that we we don't have to know. We can say, look, if reality had a total order, what's the probability that you would see it? Zero. Oh, that's interesting. If reality had a topology, what's the probability that you would see it? Zero. And you go to, and then you 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 start to see a pattern here. Zero, 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 and and, and then you look at it and you go, oh, well, the, here's the pattern. When you look at all the all the payoff functions, and you look at the ones that are going to be homomorphic, the ones that are homomorphic have to satisfy a certain equation to be homomorphic. Well, what's the probability that you're going to actually satisfy that equation? Zero. There you go. I mean, that, 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 that top level, that's, that's why we just say it doesn't matter, you know, what the structure is. But of course, we'll want to go and prove more and more structures. We'll just go down the line, prove more. Maybe eventually we can use category theory to somehow just do the whole shooting match. But but the top level idea is this: whatever structure you picture, you you pick, there's going to be an equation for that structure, and the the set of the set of functions that satisfy that equation is going to be measure zero. Just, <laughs> that's it. That's what equations do. They cut things way way down. And so so that's sort of the the the, the quick answer to this the, the second part. Um, but to to bring the FBT down to you know brass tacks with like the, the jewel beetle. The jewel beetle example is, is an example where what did evolution do for one of the most important sensory decisions a beetle, a male beetle will ever make? What are the, I mean, you, you need to know what is food and you need to know what is a mate. You also need to know what is a predator, right? So predators, food, and mates are like really critical things. And and if, if you if you don't get it right, you're not going to pass on your genes. And you've got to get the mates right. You, you have to know what a female is. So you would think, okay, well, if, if, if evolution is going to tell you the truth about anything, it's going to tell you the truth about what a female is or what a male is. Well, and here we see clear evidence for, you know, the jewel beetle, you know, literally climbing all over the bottle, full body contact with the bottle and not getting it. Simply not. And, and, and by the way, the, the same thing is true of... Um, there are some birds. You give them, uh, they, 
you would think, okay, evolution should tell them what is one of their eggs. Well, what, what is my egg and what's what's not an egg? That's a pretty important perceptual thing. Well, it turns out for uh, many of these birds, bigger is better. So you can take a big rock and stick it in the nest and they will sit on that rock. Many birds will sit on that rock instead of their own eggs. You know, they'll, they prefer it. And so here again, what's going on? What, what evolution does is it doesn't tune you to the truth. It gives you a trick or a hack. And in many cases, um, the trick or the hack um, comes with c- certain exaggerations that are preferred. So apparently, the, like the, the, the hack for these birds with eggs is the bigger the egg, the better it is, the more attractive, the more I should pay attention to it. That's, so, so these are just little heuristics, like bigger is better. Um, and same thing, apparently, with the male jewel beetle with the bottle. Apparently, you, I, haven't, I, mean, I don't know this for sure, so I'm just speculating. But my guess is that the size of that bottle and maybe, maybe the intensity of the gloss, maybe it, it was more glossy than any females. But, but the point is, it was the glossier, the better, the bigger, the better, something like that. So these are called supernormal stimuli. This is a, that, so that's a term. In, in the field, supernormal stimuli, and they're all over the place. So, and and the same thing is is true in male ratings of female attractiveness. I mean, so makeup is supernormal. So when a woman puts on red lipstick, and 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 colors, you know, in her eyes and so forth, and and ends up looking more attractive than if she hadn't. Well, there's nothing in nature that. Males did not have that. Females did not naturally have those things in the past. So we did not evolve those things to see the truth. The, what was really going on is females are giving us supernormal stimuli for for patterns that are already wired into us. So we're not even wired to know exactly what a real female looks like. We have, again, our own tricks and hacks. And apparently, uh, our, our, our one of our tricks or hacks is, to a certain extent, the redder the lips, the better. That that even if they're redder than is physiologically possible, that still works for us. So so this is true all, all over the place. We get super normal. And by and by the way, the the limbal rings that that we you can put on, if they're super normal, they, they just look more attractive up to a point. Once you go past a certain point, then you get a clown effect, right? Then you go over the. You go over the edge and, and, you, and it turns into, but you can you can push these things a long way before, and it remains super normal and more attractive. But eventually someone who doesn't know how to use the makeup just looks like a clown, right? They, they no longer look attractive. So you, you, you can't push it forever. At, at some point, the mechanism will say no more. But what this shows again is not, and this is again a, a point that Pinker makes in his book, How the Mind Works, and, and in his paper, so how does the mind work? He really makes the point that evolution is going to shape us not to have necessarily true beliefs, but to have you know, beliefs that we can compute in, in real time. We need to be able to compute this stuff fast. We need to be able to, um, sometimes our beliefs need to match social norms. We need to fit in with our group. Um, and so forth. So there are all sorts of other pressures from an evolutionary point of view that they keep. Sometimes we want to show off. You know, academics, you know, might have exotic beliefs just to show off how smart they are, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that might explain, as, as Pinker says in his, his article, yeah, that could explain a lot of academic behavior. So there's all sorts of reasons that there are selection pressures against true beliefs. Um, and, 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 and one of them, the big ones that Pinker mentions, is that simply that in many cases, um, we're doing inductive inference. We're, we're making, you're forced to guess. And so you have to use the, the best uh, the best assumptions that you can. And any assumption will have limited applicability. And so whatever assumptions you, you build your inference based on will have their own limits. And those limits will end up leading you to non-vertical perceptions. So so that's just part of the part and parcel of evolutionary theory. Where I've taken it an extra step. Uh, so, so Pinker is very, very clear in his book that evolution shapes us to, to not have true beliefs. And, and he takes on Jerry Fodor. Right? So Jerry Fodor um, has a book called The Mind Doesn't Work That Way. So he's responding to Pinker's book, How the Mind Works. And Jerry just writes a book called The Mind Doesn't Work That Way. And 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 and, and Fodor basically says there's no reason to believe that, um, that their cognitive systems have not been shaped to, ha- to have true beliefs, that all the selection pressures are for true beliefs. And Pinker then goes on and says, no, 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 there's all these reasons um, why we would not have true beliefs, but 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 then Steve, and of course you know Steve is brilliant. He's a good friend. Um, he's he's been a, a great colleague and, and friend and helped to me over the years. But one place where I think we may differ, may, maybe not. I don't know. What I have to see. In, in his paper, he says that one place where we may have true beliefs is on our. Um, perception of the distribution of everyday middle-sized objects, tables, chairs, forks, and spoons. And and I'm, I'm saying the evolutionary argument even counts against true perceptions of those things too. Those, those objects, everyday middle-sized objects, even the space-time in which we perceive them existing, all of that is also an evolutionary hack. It's not the truth. Well, okay, for for the moment, I think let's just totally grant the FBT theorem so that the probability that natural selection results in our perception of the truth is null. We'll totally grant that. Then I think this brings us back to what we do perceive. And so I'm wondering how this leads to where we started with this idea of the computer desktop or the phone screen, the home phone screen, and then what we haven't mentioned yet, at least not explicitly, which is the interface theory of perception, or the ITP. Right. So from an evolutionary point of view, if if we haven't been shaped to see the truth, then what have we been shaped to see? Well, we've been shaped to see something that guides adaptive behavior. That's what then you know that's that's when you if you just stick with what you know evolution, you've been shaped with sensory perceptions that guide adaptive behavior, period. Well, how can we understand those? What metaphor could we use to understand them? And that's where I use the desktop, you know, metaphor or a virtual reality headset metaphor. Um, if you're if you're playing a game of Grand Theft Auto, for example, a VR version with people around the world, and I look over to the right and I see a you know red Ferrari. Um, I'm not. There's no real red Ferrari anywhere. I, I, I render the red Ferrari and I perceive it when I look there. As soon as I look away, it's garbage collected. It's, it's gone. And in the supercomputer that's running the, the Grand Theft Auto game, there, if you looked inside, you would find no red Ferraris inside that supercomputer anywhere. There's just 
diodes and resistors and voltages. So the red Ferrari and all the cars that I see, including my the steering wheel of my ride, the, the dashboard, the, the, the gas pedal, all the stuff that I'm seeing gets rendered on the fly. It's there when I look. Yeah, there's a steering wheel and I see the avatar hands on the steering wheel when I look. As soon as I look away, there is there are no hands and no steering wheel anywhere. There's no, if you look inside the supercomputer, there's no hands in the supercomputer. There's no steering wheel. So, so where, when does that hand and that steering wheel exist and where? It exists only when I look and it only exists in my perception, period. Nowhere else. It's rendered on the fly and it's deleted on the fly. So we're rendering and deleting on the fly. And that's what I'm saying the physical world is. I look at the moon, I render the moon. I look at the car, I render the car. I look at my fork, I render the fork. As soon as I look away, uh, there, that, that rendering, there is some reality in the VR game. There is some reality in that metaphor. It's the supercomputer that I'm, I'm saying is the, the reality just for sake of, of, of the image, of the argument. But I'm saying that space-time itself is just our VR headset. And we render all the physical objects we see, we render on the fly. And and you go well, but but my you know my friend Joe. I mean, if I'm not looking at the at the you know, tennis ball, my Joe friend Joe sees the tennis ball. So surely that means the tennis ball is there. No, imagine a virtual reality game of tennis. So I take a virtual tennis ball and I I hit it, and I hit the tennis ball, and my 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 friend hits it back. Well, actually, my tennis ball is the one I see in my headset, and Joe's is the one that he sees in this headset. And if I if I say oh there's a but there really is a tennis ball there's not just my headset there, look I can take a tennis ball I'm not looking at it, I can drop it Joe do you still see it and he goes oh yeah I still see it well he's he's rendering a tennis ball in his headset that's why he says he still sees it so that's all that's going on as soon as you take this VR metaphor all the arguments that people give to saying for why I know that the reality exists even when you're not looking just put them in VR and you'll realize that they all fall apart you can do them all in VR and the same arguments go through. Um, and so just think VR and you'll get the right answer on this. Uh, and that's why, by the way, I, I think that what I'm saying right now seems way out there. Frankly, I think within a generation, it's going to look pretty. You know, people argued about it. People, people didn't get this. I think that the next generation that, that spends, you know, half their life in, in virtual reality, it's going to be a no brainer that when I take the, the headset off. To, to think about what I'm seeing now is just another headset. It's just it's going to be a no-brainer to them. So, so frankly, I think it's it's um, it's just going to be you know so what ho hum yeah of course it's just a, it's a VR headset to the next generation. But to my generation, it's not. It's it's uh, we didn't we weren't raised in VR um, and we have the belief that we're seeing reality as it is. Mm -hmm. There are some absolutely terrific images and diagrams in the book that represent this rendering idea. I have, of course, the, the Necker cubes in mind here. And of course, I also highly, highly recommend or encourage our listeners to read The Case Against Reality to get the, the full picture. But speaking of pictures, you've already mentioned supernormal stimuli, which I hadn't heard of before reading the book and are tremendously fascinating in their own right. But I found it very funny to see that artifacts in our perceptual system that promote our perception of fitness payoffs over reality can be hijacked and manipulated for marketing purposes. And 
I'm wondering if you have any favorite examples of this, because I mean, this isn't marketing in the same way, but one of my favorite pictures in the book is of a woman who's wearing a pair of jeans, each side of which has been stitched differently. And consequently, and and really quite dramatically, one half of her butt is a lot more attractive than the other, even though they're the same pants, just stitched slightly differently. That's right. For for many years, I consulted for jeans companies, um, and also for for marketing more generally. Um, once you know this stuff, uh, and we actually have a patent, by the way, for the jeans stuff. So I have a patent through UCI. So so the idea is that um, I'll just do the jeans for to be concrete. When you put on a pair of jeans, um, if it's a tight fitting pair of jeans, it's going to you're going to project a shape for your body. Your, your people will see a shape. And the stitching, and also, you know, if you have shading, you have wear and tear. So the, you, if you have a wear, you might have dark blue over here and then the lighter blue here because of the wear. So those wear patterns and the stitching patterns are going to automatically be interpreted by the visual system in terms of the 3D, 3D shape. That, that, that's, that's compulsory. That's not optional. When, when people look at you in your jeans, the stitching and the wear patterns convey a 3D shape that's automatically perceived by the visual system. You can't stop it. The only question is, is it conveying the 3D shape that you want to convey or not? Now, most gene manufacturers, they're using wear and tear just to, to show that the, the, the gene is distressed, for example. And they're, and they're using, they're putting their logos and stitching just for whatever reason, they, they they want their logo here and they want the stitching there. But when you actually look at it, the way you put the various kinds of stitching, the logos and the wear patterns is giving a 3D impression, which is attributed then to the shape of the person's body who's wearing the jeans. So so I showed these companies, years ago, this is over, I worked with them for many, many years. I, I, I remember going to, and to the, the executive group of, of one of the largest, maybe the largest clothing consortium in the United States. Um, and the CEO was there. And I put a picture of their jeans up there and I showed them what their wear, what, what their wear pattern was. And then I just said, if I change it, and I just change the shading a little bit to make the, the rear end look a little bit more shapely. Not, not, no, no one wants pancake butt. So, you know, there's nobody who wants pancake butt. Um, and and no one wants to deal with, perhaps whatever you. There, I won't tell you what you want. You can want whatever you want, but but I can whatever you want. I can make that happen, right? If you want pancake butt, I can give you pancake butt. If you want big butt, you can you can have whatever you want. The, so the question, but but you can ask, what do most consumers want? Most consumers don't want pancake butt. I'll put it that way. I'm not going to tell you what everybody has to have want, but but if you're looking to sell jeans that are going to be bought by a lot of people, you, you need to give people what they want. And most people are going to want something that's nicely curved, but not not maybe too big or not too small. But uh, there are exceptions. You can have niche markets. So that's perfectly fine. We can do whatever you want. This is The technology is perfectly versatile. You can give people anything you want. But the fact is that the jeans companies didn't know that you could do this, that you could change the, the shading gradients and change what people look like. So in the in the picture in my book, I actually have jeans where this one woman inside the pair of jeans on the one side 
she looks completely flat. On the other side, she looks very nice and curved. And that's what, like, I'm not saying everybody has to like that, but that's what most, that's what is going to sell most of the time. And uh, so I'm not putting any value judgments on, on this at all, but, but, but the jeans companies put a dollar judgment. They, they paid me and they, they hired, and, and several of my graduate students are now full time in this world, right? So they have their own, they've started their own companies. They're, they're doing this kind of stuff and they're doing, they're doing well and, and it works. But if you, you make subtle changes in the placement of the logos, the stitching and the shading, and all of a sudden, bang, for most people, you can go, wow, that looks a lot more attractive. So, so we can, we can do that. Yeah. I also help them with their advertising more generally. Um, one little trick, for example, that I use is that we have an attentional system, right? And you have to understand how human attention works. The whole point in advertising and marketing is in some sense to grab attention to your product and away from the competition. If you want to do that intelligently, you need to understand the rudiments of human attention. Well, there's lots of things to say, but one thing I mentioned in my book is that we have a special attentional system devoted that, that's attracted by animals, by animate objects, right? And, and that makes sense. We need, if things can move, they, they could either be predator or prey. In, in either case, they're important. If they're predator, we really need to know very, very quickly. So things that seem to have autonomous movement, we're on it and, we're, and, and that grabs our attention. Things with eyes. If there's an eye out there, you better you better look. You better pay. So we are hypersensitive to eyes, and that's why when you look look up in, in clouds, what do you you don't see? You know, grass. You see faces. You see eyes. You you your your your, your visual system is really looking for the things that could make a difference to you. Faces, eyes, animate objects. So one thing that I help these companies do was. I, we could make eyes that you didn't that that are very abstract eyes, but still meet the visual system's definition of an eye. But but you don't obviously know when you look at it that it's an eye. And we I could just put it where I want to in my advertisement, or as maybe the backdrop to the whole advertisement. And all of a sudden, you just know that you, you somehow you're riveted to looking at this advertisement and not the others. You don't know why. But what I've done is I've tapped into your animate monitoring system and and made sure that you pay attention to my product and not the others. But but what we had to do was to do it in a way where the competition didn't know what we were doing. So we had to make it abstract. If we just threw an eye on there, they go, oh, well, that's an eye. So we'll just throw an eye on our... So what I had to do was to, to go more abstract. What is the minimal stimulus that the visual system will need to get riveted to say, oh, there's probably an eye over there? My competition won't figure that out. If if I do it, you know, abstract enough, they won't figure out what we're doing. And so that's that's the kind of thing that, and that's why we got paid the big bucks was to really take the high level cognitive science and and uh, a visual perception and and this evolutionary stuff and help them make money. The the fact that you don't see the truth can make you huge money when you understand it and you know how to exploit it. The companies pay me quite a bit to do that. This might not have been the normative or prescriptive dimension to our conversation that you were expecting or how we would finish, but there are a few things that, well, few things more important to people than being attractive. And the sort of knowledge you have about perception can be used to dress or 
present oneself as more attractive. And I'm wondering if there are any re- resources that you know of that have taken advantage of this body of information, like books or blogs, or your, your former students might have podcasts or anything like this. Well, my, my book has quite a bit on it. So, and, and a lot of, a lot of the science, if you want to understand, actually, if you want to understand the science behind this and then practical applications, my book is probably the best place to start. Um, there, I, I wrote a secret book for a company, a, a major company that, uh, I won't say what the company was, but, but, um, you would know their name and they have billions every year in, in marketing. And so I wrote them a secret book, um, year, years ago, but, but I, I didn't, I can't publish that book, but I was able to take the basic concepts that I gave them. And those concepts are in my book. So I, I you know, of course I didn't plagiarize my, but, but the, I took the high level concepts, repackaged them in my book. So you can, you can, now there were things I told the company I didn't say in my book, so I didn't give it all away, but, but you get a big, big picture from, from, from my book about the, the big ideas to, and there are books on evolution and super, there, there's a book on supernormal stimuli. That, that, so I think there's a book called supernormal stimuli. So you can, that, that would be a, a good book, but, but again, um, I'm not sure how much, uh, no, uh, that would be a good place to go. That, that book. I also think if there are other, uh, I'm waiting for a book that, and I'm not going to write it because I've got other things on, on my list, but, but that could be a very lucrative book. Um, it could. Oh, ab- Absolutely. But I think the, the the first three or four chapters of my book have probably the best and most accessible introduction most people are going to get. Okay. Great. Well, Don, this has been awesome on so many fronts. I'm I'm anxious to see what you're working on next. So thanks so much for doing this with me. Thank you very much, Robinson. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Airhome.